Having to endure the worst part of spring now, welcome to Hand of Pod. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode 385 of Hand of Pod. We are now past our 10-year anniversary, um, so it's time once again, and very quickly, to thank our wonderful Patreon supporters who have got a lovely hour and a bit, hour and 20 minute long video special edition with myself and English Dan and Australian Dan for a big 10-year reunion, um, which we had a tremendous amount of fun recording and hopefully everybody on patreon is having a great time listening to or watching um if you yes, would like to if you'd like to get involved in that then get over to patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash hand of pod uh thank you to everybody who is already on that um and now i'm joined this week for hand of pod by you just heard his voice underneath mine english Dan. hello and welcome by tony hello uh, by Santi. Hi, guys. And by Andres. Hello, everyone. I started to get slightly confused then because uh, I didn't have the list of participants up in front of me. I've just brought it up now. And um, it, I think it's the first time that I've introduced everybody without that list. It, it's a bit odd not being able to see your faces and not having your names written down somewhere, even though I knew exactly who was who. Um, well, congrats on remembering who we are. Thank you. Yeah. I, I've. I feel I've earned my, my rest for the week the week now. Um, so, we shall get going this week with the main footballing story of the week, uh, which is, of course, the World Cup qualifiers. There was a round of Copa de la Liga action as well, um, as we sort of half expected last week. We were, we were gambling a bit when I read out Mystic Sam as to whether it was actually going to happen or whether it was a blip on my live app, uh, live score app. Uh, but it was indeed played. So we will go over that in the second half. But we, this, this first half, we'll go over the World Cup qualifiers in Conmebol. Um, I'll go through, for, first of all, all of the results. So last, a week ago today, uh, these kicked off. Um, and the first round of the doubleheader went Bolivia 2, Ecuador 3, Argentina 1, Paraguay 1, Colombia 0, Uruguay 3, Chile 2, Peru 0, and Brazil won, Venezuela nil. And then on Tuesday, uh, the second match of the doubleheader finished. Venezuela 2, Chile 1, Ecuador. This is uh, one of the biggest results in the world international break, I think, over this week in terms of the scoreline. Ecuador 6, Colombia 1, Paraguay 2, Bolivia 2, Uruguay nil, Brazil 2, and Peru nil, Argentina two we are of course going to begin by talking about argentina's two results and uh, not to brag or anything but i said they'd get a home draw and an away win so i'm feeling pretty smug at the moment does anybody I think actually nailed the results I think, I think you have every right to be smug to be fair sam because 
we all thought it was going to be the other way around. I think we underestimated Paraguay, or at least their doggedness, and overestimated Peru's doggedness. Uh, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I, I, but I was a little. To bit be fair surprised. to Peru, they had they had other things on their mind this week. We could say it wasn't Indeed, the yeah. best week for Peru as as a country. Yeah, the the match itself was uh, almost. Not well. I don't know how close it was to actually not being played, but there were rumours in the a couple of days before that it might have to be called off due to the unrest in Peru um, at the moment uh, around the the political situation. I think that the COVID situation there has played a part in that as well. Although I've not been pl- following it particularly closely, um, but yeah, I, I actually I think I I might have possibly overestimated Peru's doggedness slightly myself because although Santi said that I, I nailed the the results I don't think I got the scores exactly right I think I had Argentina winning 2-1 rather than 2-0 um, but I did get 1-1 against Paraguay correct and in fact after that 1-1 against Paraguay um, I don't think any of us were feeling that great about how the team had played were we? Well um, I think um... Perhaps one of the main factors that uh, contributed towards that is the fact that due to the squad and uh, the starting lineup specifically, um, suffering so many changes over the, over the week uh, before I think the game, the game was held because um, I assume that Scaloni was trying to wait for Tagliafico until the very, very, very end to see whether he was fit to play and that meant that the names of um, people like uh, Lisandro Martinez and Facundo Medina um, had been uh, sorted to, to start. But in the end, we were all shocked to see that um, Nico Gonzalez, the former Argentinos forward and current Stuttgart forward, was playing at left back, a position which, um, according to what um, some people have answered me, he has played but at wing back. Uh, in Germany, but um, of course he had never played there for Argentina. Uh, and I think that um, uncertainty and that um, questions over where exactly were the the, the players, uh, what, what, what exactly were the players' positions and where they were going to play, etc. Because there was also rumor that there would be um, they were going to be on a four four two or four three three or a three-man backline as well. I think it showed on the fact that um, for long chunks of the the game, especially in the first half hour, uh, the players, like, they didn't know what the the roles were and uh, they weren't exactly sure where they were supposed to play and what exactly what they're supposed to do. And um, that, of course, generated um, a long period of... uh, Dominion from Dominion from Paraguay, and uh, it, of course, was um, mostly, I think, determined by the fact that we we considered a very what was for me a very sloppy penalty from Martinez Cuarta, who had a pretty bad game alongside uh, Nicolas Otamendi, and uh, well, resulted in the in the first goal. When, since then, I think um, Argentina in the second half they created some better chances. Um, Messi was very, 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 I think, uh, unfortunate to be stripped of the, the winner in, was, in what was, I, I believe, which was it is 
fair according to the rules to to be um, chopped off that goal through VAR because of how VAR is implemented. But then it, the problem is how VAR is implemented, I think. But uh, yeah, Arsenal really, really struggled to to create chances because they just um, they just didn't know how to penetrate Paraguay's very deep backline. Actually, if you look at the backline, they were it was comprised of four centre backs, which I think gave away the plans to um, be as compact as possible and deny the the entry into the box. And they they succeeded in that for most of the time. And in in addition to that, um, Miguel Miron, who for me was the man of the match, was simply everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Whenever they, they try to start an attack or cut uh, an Argentina attack and or trying to to generate some play uh, or well, shoot to, to counter, he was always there, uh, which generally baffles me on the fact that he, has, he hasn't been given a lot of play time on club level, but... Uh, Fair play to him, uh, but Argentina really headed to to Lima with a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, we all know that if you go one nil down to Paraguay early when when Paraguay are playing away, you're in for a rough evening because they they know how to put bodies behind the ball, and you know that even if you do get it on get back to level terms, it's pretty much going to be the same game because. For Paraguay, um, a draw away to Argentina is a result they'll take any day of the week. Uh, it's you know historically been a very difficult fixture for Argentina, and and it doesn't help when you have guys like Martinez Cuarta inexplicably taking leaves out of Nicolas Otamendi's book and just forgetting how to defend. I mean, I think the best description you can make of the of the penalty offence was was a backside tackle. He tried to take Almiron, I think it was, down with his ass, um, which really wasn't a very good idea and you can't really argue with the penalty either. And yeah, as Sonny said, after after the goal, Argentina had to go on the front foot. I think, um, I wouldn't say they were lucky because it was a very nasty injury, but um, Ezequiel Palacios coming off um, after getting kneed very hard in the back by, by goal scorer Oscar Romero. Uh, Angel Romero, sorry, um, was almost a blessing in disguise for Argentina because Giolo Lo Celso came in and and the team did look a little bit uh, more balanced, uh, a bit more dangerous going forward because um, while well, Palacios is you know the more mobile uh, of the two, Lo Celso's got kind of that creative streak which we saw again uh, against Peru in uh, the game, which I think he was absolutely fantastic. Um, and yeah, they managed to get it back just before half time. And then, you know, the second half, we all knew it was a question of what was going to win out Argentina's attack or Paraguay's stoic defense. And, and in the end, it was Paraguay. And I think quite comfortably for them, despite, you know, the Messi's goal, which was ruled out by VAR, I thought um, the substitutions didn't do Argentina any favors. Um, just when Argentina were looking. Like they might get back on top. They got uh, guys like Angel Di Maria and and Lucas Saladio came in for for Lautaro and and De Paul. Campos. No, and De Campos. Sorry, which I think uh, who in really did mess up the team's balance and kind of brought them back to square one. And and from there, it all got 
a little bit boring, a little bit um, bogged down, and, and you thought, yeah, this is ending in the draw, and it's not going to go any other way. Yeah, for the sake of clarity, let's just say that um, Ocampos and Lautaro weren't exactly having the best of games that no, night. No, but they were, they were probing, they were, they were dangerous. I mean, and I don't think Alari or, or Di Maria really did anything to, to kind of say, ah, oh, what a good substitution. But hey, that's my opinion. Di Maria is historically, has always been unlikely to do so, in fairness. Um, Indeed. But... Why? Just why? Indeed. Well, Correa, yeah. who had such a great impact against Bolivia. I mean, I don't think he got a minute this time around, did he? Unless he came on against Peru. Or Papu Gomez, even. I mean, why is he Not always struggling Papu with Gomez. the squad? Forget why is Papu he always struggling with the squad in the first place if the only minutes he's going to get is after the 90th minute against Sorry. Peru? Maybe he makes a good match this, doesn't he? Just checking. Yeah, he might crack, uh, crack a couple of jokes in the dressing room, perhaps. Correa didn't get on against Peru, no. So he's a bit of a strange one in that he keeps calling him up and then it never seems to be considered for for um, a, an option off the bench at all, which is a little bit weird. But uh, I mean, you think after being the match winner in La Bassa, it would have earned him a little bit of a uh, leeway. I don't know. Would have been indeed, interesting yeah. to see him against Paraguay at least. Um, you know, up. Don't think I even realised he was on the bench because I tend to watch football games these days, juggling a million things. But but now looking back on it, that could have been could have been an interesting change, perhaps. Oh. Anyway, uh, what I think is that if you watch the match against Paraguay, of course you will have introduced a lot of changes and and and, and wonder why Correa or Papu Gomes weren't uh, uh, didn't jump into the into the game, but uh, if you watch, on the other hand, the, the game against Peru, perspective changes, and you will say just the opposite. Why? Well, the the, the team works just perfectly, and and perhaps to make any changes to that, uh, especially with Nicolas Gonzalez, who uh, Santi mentioned Miguel Almiron, and of course it's not uh, uh, to compare, but uh, Almiron works everywhere the same as Nicolas Gonzalez was. Um, because it's like a player who breaks the systems, you will say, or, or people that uh, wonder or ask, well, in which position does he play? And of course, he started as a, a left-back, but then he played in the midfield, in, in attack, scoring the goal, and and, and even uh, having great connection with Tagliafico and, and, and Lo Celso. Um, so it's uh, yes, uh, and they repeated the same uh, way. I mean, uh, having played better in in away condition than home, uh, because the first round was against Ecuador. The surprise now surprising Ecuador of Gustavo Alfaro winning, but not uh, being not being convincing. I mean, being uh, playing a dull game and, and being much better against Bolivia. And in the case, it was more or less repeated the, the, the sequence. I mean, playing not very well against Paraguay and improving much better, uh, much uh, against, uh, against um, Peru. Yeah, the, the shape um, was different against Peru. Tagliafico came back in for that game and so Ocampos yeah. uh, was dropped to the bench. Um, and they looked a lot happier in kind of a 4-4-1-1 with Messi just in behind Lautaro Martinez. Um, 
And as, as, as Andres mentioned, Nicolas Gonzalez scored again. So that's two and two internationals now, which isn't bad going considering that at least uh, people who don't listen to this podcast in Argentina um, hadn't really heard of Nicolas Gonzalez before uh, this week, apparently, uh, <laughs> judging by the, a lot of the reaction to it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a much better performance and aided, I think, in, in both matches by the fact that uh, Lionel Messi has uh, clearly found his happy place with the national team now. We, we never really on this podcast subscribe to the idea that he didn't perform for Argentina before. Um, but it really does seem now like he's finding some respite from all of the nonsense going on at club level, um, to me, at least from the outside. I think that what he has found is or found out is that if he fails, there is there are teammates who who can rescue him, and it's not the other way around. Uh, yeah, that's true as well. Th- those those few matches that he was suspended for after the Copa America last year, where we kind of said at the time maybe this is the chance for Scaloni to to put together a group who can play well together themselves, and then have Messi come back into it, and and that seems to be. That's what he's done, yeah. How it's worked. Uh, right? Fair play to him. I mean, we said a lot of stuff about Scaloni. I think a lot of the criticism we've made is valid and continues to be valid. But in that, I mean, for once, an Argentina coach didn't just wait around for Messi to to either decide to come back or be able to come back. He thought, no, we're going to make a team. We're going to bring in new faces. This is well overdue. And, and credit to him. Most, I mean, he's tried out a lot of players, but... But, you know, there's a core of guys who weren't really involved prior to Scaloni's arrival who, who are now absolutely undisputed in the national team. And that is, I think, um, uh, that speaks very highly of him, at least as a kind of a gauge of, of personnel, right? Yeah, fair play to him because, um, I mean, now you, you look at players like, um, not, not just uh, Nico Gonzalez, who to be, well, kudos to Scaloni because I think he was the one who trusted in, uh, who put his trust in him from the very beginning. Even last year, he was being called for some friendlies, even even when uh, I think Stuttgart was still in the in the second Bundesliga. And uh, But even if you look at some of the players who have become like stalwarts in the Argentine team, like uh, De Paul and Paredes, they were the kind of players that um, weren't exactly thought of uh, when there was talk of... Uh, of a reshape of the Argentina squad after the World Cup in Russia. Actually, I remember Paredes was always um, was always given given stick because every time he appeared for the national team, he was rather underwhelming. And there was, in fact, talk that um, somebody else should have occupied that defensive midfield position, like Guido Rodriguez or even someone like Casillas, who has just fallen way out of the pecking order right now. So um, it's. It's all on him for for them to become the 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 Argentina um, linchpins they are right now. Um, can I can I just want to circle back to to what Andres said and just throw it out there because as uh, Andres said and, and I think we all agree that the Argentina didn't actually perform really well at home. But how how much longer can that be sustainable? Uh, because obviously the, the the away wins are really valuable but they do need to perform at home. Well, I've, I've looked it up. And uh, sorry, Dan, but I've, I, I was looking at the fixtures just idly uh, while one of you were talking earlier, and they, they're at home to Brazil 
uh, one year in one year's time, almost exactly, the 16th of November. So arguably, they can sustain relatively poor performances at home until then, I would think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we, we definitely have to sustain that uh, level away because the next away game for Argentina is precisely Brazil in March. Yeah, but that's a write-off anyway, isn't it? Brazil never lose a World Cup qualifier at home, <laughs> so you don't need to worry about that too much. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, and speaking, uh, speaking on that note, um, I think it's very... Um, I have to recognise the fact that Argentina actually won two away games that um, they haven't won in more than 15 years each. Last time they, we discussed in the previous episode that the last time they won in La Paz was in 20, 2005. And uh, the last time they won at Lima before uh, Tuesday was actually 2004, which is, I think, um, it gives a whole new dim- dimension, I think, to the results uh, achieved by the national squad recently. Yeah, but I think we have to take into account as well that um, in these new... Scary times. Um, home form just isn't as important and isn't as uh, decisive as it once was because you're playing in front of empty stadiums. You know, we've seen it in the Argentine League, we've seen it in European leagues, and now we're seeing it in the, in the internationals. I mean, you know, games where you think, you know, the home teams should be walking away with it. I mean, on the same, in the same international round, you had a, a Brazil-Venezuela game where they only managed to win 1-0 with a goal in something like the, that 80th minute. I mean, they made a right pig zero there. Um, so I think, yeah, in these qualifiers, at least until everything gets back to normal, home advantage is going to mean a hell of a lot less uh, than it probably would uh, in other years, especially, you know, these in these stops like Paraguay, Uruguay, who, who are known for like their vociferous, um, home atmospheres and making it very awkward for, um, for the away teams. I just don't think this is this is going to weigh as heavy this time around. So um, yeah, but even still, even still, um, uh, COVID hasn't stopped altitude. I think from no, of course, altitude is a different games. consideration. Absolutely, uh, but for Argentina, who don't don't benefit from altitude at home, I think it's going to be the same home or away. Um, so you can't really put. That much stock in in being the home team because it's pretty much just some paper. Who do we think individually and in terms of of the players? I think we can all generally agree that it's another qualified um, success for Scaloni during this international break. But in in terms of the other players, who do we think are the main winners and losers, or or movers up and movers down the pecking order in the national team? I, I, Lo Celso coming on for. Um, Ezequiel Palacios uh, half an hour in against uh, Paraguay is, is obviously going to be one of the, the winners I would think it was very very clear uh, how much of a, a difference and how much more dynamic the team looked with him I mean you know long term listeners of this podcast will be aware that I'm quite a fan of Palacios but uh, him alongside Paredes seemed to be slowing things down a little bit in, in comparison with the, the partnership that we saw for the last hour of that game and then for the whole of um, of the Peru match in central midfield. I think yeah. the other of the winners was just, just uh, Paredes. As, of course, uh, I keep in mind and I remember more the, the recent matches and against Peru, I think he did everything we asked for uh, because... Uh, previously, I know I noticed or I 
I watched him play like uh, much better perhaps at her clubs than in the national team. And the other day, even, of course, including the, the assist uh, for Lautaro Martinez to score oh, second goal. Uh, he was just, uh, like you say, the, the engine of the, of, the, of the team the other day. And of course, he must repeat it. It's not because of only one match you will say, yeah, Paredes is just the number five that national team needs. But uh, I think if you take about you talk about winners or players who uh, improved uh, at least for the last match, the very last match, it was one. He was one of the great winners. Yeah, I think that that's that's fair. Um, if you've not seen Paredes assist for Lautaro Martinez yet, don't look at it on a on a family computer or a work computer because it's pure filth. It, it was it was lovely. Um, he obviously started when he was a kid. He, he was a, a, an enganche, a number 10. And uh, it was the kind of pass that Riquelme would have been proud of, in my opinion. It was, it was lovely. Nico Gonzalez, obviously, is another of the big, I mean, the big winner, um, really. Um, the back line, though, both of those centre-backs, Otamendi, and I mean, to a much lesser extent, Martinez Cuarta, but as uh, I think it was Santi was saying, he had a bit of a shocker against Paraguay. Um, it's still a defence that just sort of to, to use a term that Alejandro Sabella coined you, you're just burying your face in your hands and hoping for the best when the opposition attack aren't you? Yes I think so and I must say I didn't feel much security with uh, Armani in goal either um, he, Yeah I don't know why Martinez of... doesn't get the the nod he's just that it's not maybe yeah, so much actually, a huge dro- I mean, difference in Armani quality, but in terms of style. Yeah. In terms, yeah, in terms of style of goalkeeper. Against, uh, against uh, Peru, he wasn't even on the bench. I mean, the, the three goalkeepers were Amani, Andrade and Marquezine, which leads me to actually wonder what the fuck is Caloni is doing calling four goalkeepers for two qualifiers <laughs> for the nth time? Well, it's in case one gets coronavirus, isn't it? Like, or two. Could what happen? you got to uh, cover your tracks. Um, I thought, yeah, of all the defence, probably Montiel came out of it more or less unscathed and Taliafico, I mean, he showed that he's definitely not a striker with uh, with one of his finishes against Peru in the first half after a brilliant messy pass, uh, but he was solid enough at the back. Um, yeah, but that centre-back pairing and, and that running goal, um, you're going you're gonna to concede goals and you're going to lose points on it over... Over the long term, so that's definitely something that has to be improved. I mean, we know that, for example, Otamendi is not going to be playing the next game against Uruguay. He's um, he's suspended, uh, which is positive. Um, um, Uruguay are going to be without Cavani as well, so that's a double blow for Uruguay. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> someone's got to step up and, and do something. I mean, I'd love one of the other centre-backs in the squad to come in and have an absolute blinder against Uruguay and just make this horrible Otamendi nightmare go away forever. But I don't know. We'll, I mean, considering, we'll considering how fickle uh, Scaloni is with the, with the fact that he grants automatic uh, starting, starting birds for people who actually have a good performance on one game, I think that might as well happen. Yeah, well, to to get Otamendi out of the team by virtue of whoever replaces him coming in and having a stormer. 
Um, I'd agree. I mean, the, the, the thing with the goalkeeping question is, is just when do you do it? Because as Dan's just pointed out, or as a combination of Dan's comment just now and uh, one of the other comments earlier on will have uh, pointed out, you don't change your... I mean, given, given that Armani isn't doing anything wrong as such, he's just maybe not the best fit for the team. It would be a very brave coach who would change goalkeeper right before a double header against Uruguay and Brazil. Um, so well, that's sort really of sure. why Sergio Romero lasted so long, right? So long because he was never spectacular, but he never actually did anything wrong. So he just ended up being Argentina's keeper for. Yeah, for like, I, for I remember there years. were. Yeah, there were uh, some very serious calls for Willy Caballero to replace him back in 2013 or something. Yeah. He was actually on pretty good form for Malaga. And uh, yeah, it was a big fat case of pick up for what we wish for. But um, the thing is, uh, well, relating to Willy Caballero, if we think about the 2022 World Cup, Armani uh, will be 36, which was the same age as um, the same age Caballero was uh, when. Russia 2018 rolled through, and um, I don't think it would be very sustainable to have a goalkeeper um, so well who is already um, a bit of a of a liability during crosses to go into that World Cup at that age while Martinez is still in his prime, 28 years old. Um, I mean, starring in one of the most uh, most informed teams in in one of the top leagues in the world. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it would take an absolute clangor or a, or a very, very, very bad match uh, from Armani for him to be dropped. But if that, that's the case, we're going to be with a heart in our mouths for a long, long time, I think. Yeah, it sounds about right. I mean, I'd even prefer to see Andrade in there, to be honest. I think of the two, he is clearly the superior goalkeeper. If not, maybe as, you know, he doesn't pull off these eye-catching, sexy saves that Armani uh, occasionally manages, but I think he's he's a much more solid figure there between the posts. But Scaloni hasn't asked me yet, so uh, we'll just have to keep waiting. Any other winners or losers from the week? I was going to say that, uh, well, you, you have just mentioned Otamendi as a great loser. And I think that the, the idea of having four months uh, until the next match is a good news for, for Scarlini to prepare. I will say, well, of course, we have to see whether, whether Pesela is fit or not because he had recent injuries. Uh, and, well, it's four months. Even we have time to see whether he, he, he recovers or to prepare, I will say, Kahneman or Senesi. There, in fact, there is a, a listener who asks about Senesi and uh, could be, but he has never been called up, or at least recently, uh, or even Medina or Nahuel Perez. I mean, there are options. I mean, four months is a, a, is a, a lot of time to prepare, and knowing that Otamendi for sure won't be there, uh, I think that's a good idea or a good, uh, uh, I think, uh, to, to, to see who can, who can replace him. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see as well whether Otamendi gets called up for the squad for that double header being only suspended for the first match because if he does then that's going to be an immediate indicator that he's presumably going to be definitely playing against Brazil in the second match and uh, it'll be interesting to see what effect that has on the confidence of whoever comes in for him against Uruguay but again 
as Andres has just pointed out, this is four months away um, now anyway. So it's nothing but speculation. Um, now, moving on to some of the other matches, I'm guessing that we all caught at least some of them. Um, Bolivia versus Ecuador looks like it was very entertaining. I completely forgot it was happening, or rather I didn't forget it was happening, obviously, because you don't forget that World Cup qualifiers are being played. But I thought it was kicking off at seven, and it turned out it actually kicked off at five. Um, so I was settling down to, to start watching it while myself and the two dams were recording our birthday special for um, our Patreon supporters, and it turned out that it had already finished. Um, but that one went uh, 1-0 to Bolivia, at half time and then Ecuador came back to lead 2-1 got pegged back to 2-2 and found a really late winner 88th minute penalty um, to win it 3-2 combined with their 6-1 demolition of Colombia and obviously with the proviso that Ecuador are more used to playing at altitude than most other teams who visit La Paz so it's not as big a surprise to see them winning away to Bolivia as most of the other teams on the continent um, that rather shaky 1-0 win in the Bombonera uh, on the opening day of World Cup qualifying is starting to look a little less terrible, perhaps. If Ecuador are suddenly the form team in the, in the, on the continent, maybe it wasn't so bad beating them 1-0. Yeah, well, we will have to wait and see um, whether Ecuador can keep this form because um, let's not forget that they had a similarly inspired start to the previous World Cup cycle and they, well, ended up way, way, way off from qualification. But, uh, yeah, it's it's very, it's very, very encouraging signs, uh, early days. And, um, yeah, I agree that um, maybe this result will... will get better I think uh, over the coming over the coming weeks over the coming months I guess because especially um, the the games that Argentina has to face uh, on the next uh, international break against Uruguay and Brazil are particularly uh, difficult and to go into those games with a record of 10 points out of 12 available it's pretty pretty good um, so yeah uh, fair play to Ecuador who actually got uh, to got Colombia to sack uh, Carlos Quiroz recently. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I was. I would have been almost a bit surprised if I'd heard that Quiroz had been allowed back into the country, to be honest. I don't think that many of Colombia's backline, uh, they might be fearing for their places in the team as well, because it was just Actually, the first half in particular up. was atrocious. Go on, Dan. Uh, he hasn't been sacked yet. There was um, a joke tweet going out which was a guy pretending to be the Colombian FA that went viral saying he's already been sacked but it hasn't quite happened yet it surely oh, can't be far away though no surely not I think it's it's imminent but it's not quite I'm sure by the time we finish recording it will be the case but right now uh, by the time this guy's up on air I mean but right now he is still in the job and I think he's in for a pretty decent payday uh if he does get the boot, or when he does get the boot. Yeah, very true. It, it was a very un-Queros-like, well, it's been a very un-Queros-like team to watch, really, ever since the start of qualifying. Um, now, a, a really shaky 3-0 defeat at home to Uruguay, um, with Sherry Mina being sent off right at the very end. Um, on, was it Thursday or Friday last week? It was Friday, wasn't it? Um, 
and and that one was kind of maybe a bit wasteful, but you know, just somewhat amateur hour sometimes as well. But then the Ecuador game is just terrible. There were two goals in two minutes, really early on, um, and then they fell to pieces as well as as the the first half was coming to an end and got. I'm not even going to say they rescued some dignity for half time, to be honest. James Rodriguez pulled one back to make it 4 1 at the break from a penalty. Um, and then they let two in again in the last sort of 12 minutes or so. Uh, the last one I actually was the only one that I didn't catch because uh, I just assumed it was over. Uh, and then Perry Sestupinian scored what I hear was a very nice free kick. Um, one of the best names in South American World Cup qualifying, by the way, so it's one to listen for in future, Perebis Estupinian. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see where Colombia go from here because they can't get any worse. I think it was uh, equally surprising the, the, the poor Colombia performance as the Ecuador performance was. Uh, of course, uh, perhaps if we say that Alfaro is a defensive coach, we will uh, be unfair, but... Uh, I have never watched a team directed by him playing with that offensive approach like Ecuador has. Of course, playing home, is uh, they have the advantage of the attitude, but even so, uh, 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 of course, great for him and, and, and uh, Ecuador is showing, uh, uh, I think, is the revelation so far of the qualifiers. Uh, and, and as you said before, uh, the 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 victory against them in the first round was uh, more valuable now that they have played, they are playing like this. Now, the leaders of the South American qualification uh, group at the moment are inevitably uh, Brazil. Argentina in second with 10 points, um, but having dropped those two to Paraguay, it means that Brazil, with a perfect record, are still top. Um, as Dan mentioned, they were less than impressive at home to Venezuela. I'm being quite kind on them there um, on Friday. They were, I mean, it's Brazil at home to Venezuela. So on the one hand, there was only ever going to be one winner. Um, but it was sort of, you wouldn't have been surprised by the end to maybe see Venezuela nick one because it just seemed like Brazil deserved to concede and, and, and to uh, have some egg on their faces at the end more than that Venezuela particularly deserving to get anything out of the game. Um, but then against uh, Uruguay, it was a, a much more disciplined and much more on it performance, I thought, considering they were away from home. Um, job done before half time, shut down in the second half, really. Yeah, pretty much. I think um, Brazil uh, emerging as. Just, an, um, just as they have probably in the last uh, 30 or so years, with that exception of uh, probably between 2014 and 2016, as this team that uh, didn't necessarily have to play um, some beautiful, exciting, uh, attacking brand of football, but they will eventually beat you. Not one way or the other, they will eventually uh, find a way to to beat you, whether it is 1-0 uh, or 4-3. I think in the case of, uh, of a game like Venezuela, it's one of those fixtures which, in which you'd expect Brazil to score no less than four or five goals, and uh, maybe the 1-0 result was kind of surprising. But yeah, then 
then um, to be honest, uh, in fairness, I think uh, Uruguay have uh, not exactly been uh, at their best, despite the the win against Colombia, which well can be we can say pretty pretty much the same thing um, for Colombia. But um, yeah, maybe th- this is a very I think strange time for some of the of the probably more established teams in South America. Uh, but yeah, Brazil, one way or the other, they will. They seem to be always uh, able to find a way to, to beat you, no matter how how they play or how they seem to to deserve the lead. Yeah, perhaps a little fortunate as well, because um, Darwin Nunez nearly broke the crossbar about two minutes in. Uh, if he hit that a few inches lower, he might very well have, have taken Ederson's hand off and scored to boot as well and put Uruguay 1-0 up. And I think I remember Uruguay hitting the bar again was it at one one by uh, one nil by that point, or possibly still at nil nil? Um, so it might have been a very different story uh, had Uruguay's finishing just been a little bit better. Um, yeah, they were unfortunate. I think uh, uh, I can't remember much of the second half, but definitely in the first half it was a level game, and and Brazil got that little bit of fortune in, uh, especially in the first goal, which took a huge deflection to get past uh, Campania. Um, and from there, I think, you know, you got to go down to Brazil and there's really no way back because they're just going to squeeze the life out of you. They're relentless. They're not always, no, they're very rarely these days um, entertaining or exciting to watch, but they are relentless. That's, that's a given. Indeed, they are. Uh, I'm just going to mention at this point, by the way, that I've just had a WhatsApp message from Tony. He's had a power cut, so he's now... Not on the call, um, unfortunately, but fortunately, he made me the host before having said power cut, so we can continue to Excellent. record. Um, Paraguay versus Bolivia was a match which I didn't manage to actually watch, but was paying attention to the score of, and I was getting quite excited because at half time, and then for quite a lot of the second half, it looked as if we might be about to see Bolivia getting an away win which is something that last happened, I think, in any competition, like three years ago or something. Uh, they, they don't manage to get away wins very often, even when they're playing teams like Bangladesh in friendlies and stuff. Um, but unfortunately for Bolivia, uh, but you know, no offence meant to any of our Paraguay or Paraguay sympathetic listeners, um, there was an equaliser from Kaku with 18 minutes to go. And Bolivia couldn't find a way through there. And in fact, um, had a little bit of an escape because the VAR cancelled a penalty uh, with about two minutes to go for Angel Romero. Um, after giving yeah, would have been, a penalty really early on as well, and, um, which Angel Romero scored. It would have been their first away World Cup qualifying win since 1993. Away to <laughs> Venezuela when Venezuela were terrible. And back when Bolivia actually qualified for a World Cup. Yeah, they had a decent team back then, yeah. Um, yeah. 57 games and counting now on the road. Wow. Yeah, I had a really quick look just down um, while, while it was going on. I think I, I can't remember what I was working and just saw the scoreline score update flashing up. So I had a look down at least as far as Sofa score had Bolivia's results. And that went back to about 2017 or 2016 or something and only had one away win in some friendly against somebody or other. I can't remember. I didn't realise that their 
away record in qualifying. I mean, obviously, I knew their away record in qualifying was bad. I didn't realise it was quite that bad. But I suppose it largely mirrors what we've seen from Bolivian sides in the Copa Libertadores in that time. You know, we got very excited. Was it last year when the strongest won outside La Paz for the first time in 50 years or something and then promptly went and won two other um, away Libertadores ties in that very same season? Um, so, yep. Yeah. We're going to have to wait a little bit longer for Bolivia to, to win an away World Cup qualifier. Uh, we'll see who it comes against. But Venezuela beating Chile. What happened there? Well, there were some encouraging signs from Venezuela in the, in the last couple of games, even despite the fact that they hadn't um, earned any points in none of those games, especially Brazil, um, which they held to a 1-0 defeat just... But they, in fairness, you look at this, the squad and they have a pretty decent group of players. Um, a lot of them even uh, starring in, in or, or having starts recently in quite big teams as well with uh, the, the Granada pair, for example, of uh, Darwin Machis and Yangel Herrera. Yes, indeed, yeah. Uh, Yangel Herrera, who, who I see here, set Luis Mago up for the opener. Um, on Tuesday. Yeah, and of course, the, the talismanic uh, Salomon Rondon uh, up front, who well, always looked like he, he might uh, he might get them at some point a, a little bit closer to a World Cup qualification. And they almost did that in 2014, I think, but they, they I think they were, um, they were denied a place in the playoffs uh, by Uruguay on account of goal difference, if I'm not wrong. But after that, they... In, in the middle of um, most of Venezuela's um, systemic issues in politics and, uh, and economics and such, uh, the Venezuelan Federation was also uh, impacted and they regressed a lot. But uh, apparently um, the, the stars they have in the squad have finally begun to click. And uh, I think I, I believe they might put, a, put up a fight uh, for, for qualification to, to, to a first ever World Cup. Yeah, we'll all have our fingers crossed for them. We'll catch uh, some this, this match against Venezuela, but for Chile, taking into account the, the match against Peru and this one, it looks like it's full, uh, Vidal plus 10 because they, he scored the three goals uh, that Chile scored in, in the sec, uh, double round uh, qualifiers. And uh, after this defeat, the, it was said that, or rumored, that uh, Chile will look for, for Peckerman to replace uh, Reinaldo Rueda. Yeah, um, indeed. I mean, Vidal kind of dragged Chile kicking and and screaming through a fair bit of uh, the last World Cup qualifiers as well, if I remember rightly. There were a couple of games where he was absolutely immense and his teammates may as well not have been on the pitch. Um, So it's a little bit worrying from a Chilean point of view to see that that still isn't changing and, and the team I'm just looking at the starting 11 against Venezuela now and it's very much the, the majority of them are players who we would have expected to see playing for Chile in, in either of their two um, Copa America wins you know five and four or five years ago uh, and they're still there now so there's not been the refreshing of the squad uh, that's happened there obviously there are other podcasts who will cover this in in more detail and in a better place than we are to, to comment on the makeup of the Chile national side. Um, but just a, you know, a very quick and superficial glance at the starting 11. 
suggests that it's not too difficult to see what the problems are. On that note, if no one's got anything to add on Chile, uh, let's uh, run down the standings. I'll just check how long we've been recording. Oh, this is a good place to have a half-time break. Actually, we've been recording for a bit longer than I realised. So Brazil, as I say, are top of the standings uh, with 12 points from four matches, which is 100% if you haven't been keeping count or aren't very good at maths or anything. Um, Argentina are second with 10 points. Ecuador third with nine. And then there is a three-point gap to Paraguay in fourth with six and Uruguay in fourth, uh, in fifth, sorry, with six, just behind on goal difference. Chile have four points, as do Colombia. Venezuela have three and Peru and Bolivia are the two teams who still have yet to win a match. Um, both in slightly unfortunate circumstances in their own ways uh, and have one point each with one draw and three defeats. We're going to go to a half-time break now. When we come back, we will go over the Copa de la Liga Profesional de Football or Copa de la Liga, as we're calling it here on Hand of Pod. So don't go away. Welcome back. I've just realised that I'd never explained my introductory comment about the worst thing about spring, and that is that I have massive amounts of hay fever, but I've managed to get the sneezing and um, coughing and stuff under control now. So hopefully you didn't pick, pick up on that during the first half of the game, uh, of the, game, of the uh, podcast. Um, we are going to whip through the latest round of Copa de la Liga action. There were lots and lots and lots of away wins uh, last weekend. Uh, Rosario Central 2, Banfield 4, Atletico Tucumán 3, Union 1, Aldo Civi 1, San Lorenzo 4, Lanús 2, Newells 4, Racing 0, Arsenal 2, Godoy Cruz 0, River 1, Huracán 3, Gimnasia 2, Estudiantes 0, Argentinos 1, Defensive Justicia 0, Independiente 0, Boca 0, Tacheres 1, Yes, you heard that correctly. Bele Sarsfield 1, Patronato 0, and Colón 2, Central Córdoba 0. As I said, lots of away wins. The only one I'd really class as particularly uh, surprising there is, is Boca losing in the Bombonera. Uh, two people sent off as well, um, albeit both very late on. Agustina Obando uh, for a professional foul, and then Carlos Izquierdos like a minute later for a, a different foul. Um, Joel Sonora, for our, our American listeners, was the scorer of the only goal in that game just a few minutes before both of those red cards. Um, so well done, Tacheres. Uh, that leaves Tacheres top of Group 4 with seven points and Boca second with six. Newells and Lanús have three and one respectively after three matches, so half of that group still to play. Um, on a day in which the first... I think there were four matches played on Saturday and the first three all ended in away wins. And so it was inevitable um, that the last of those matches was going to end in an away win, given that it was River Plate playing in Mendoza, where they always win. Um, And it seemed to me like the inevitability of that result was what won it for River more than River themselves. Andres talked last week or the week before about how River were 
struggling to click into gear a bit. And I think that they were maybe a little bit better than they have been in previous weeks, but it, it seemed more inertia to me than anything else that, that got them through. Um, the goal in that one came from Federico Hirotti. Uh, was it a diving header? Am I remembering yes. that right? Yeah. Yes, it was. Yes. With about 15 minutes to go. Um, and then um, reserve goalkeeper, because of course Andrada and Armani were both the way with Argentina. So both, as we mentioned last week, both River and Boca had to field their second choice goalkeepers. And Enrique Bologna had to save a penalty just a couple of minutes later. Um, he so was ahead of the line a bit, but uh, the referee didn't uh, make a repeat the, 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 the penalty. Um, yeah, there's, there's no VAR in um, Argentine domestic football, yeah, which makes that rather difficult to spot, doesn't it? But uh, apart from that, uh, we could uh, name, rename him like Ubaldo Matilda Bologna because uh, he was one of the men of the match with only, I think, I, I, if I read correctly, but 10 matches in four years for, for him. Uh, of course, well, as well as, as long as Armani is in the goal, he won't, be, he won't have any chances. But uh, in this time, he, he had one and he didn't, uh, or he took advantage of it. Yeah. Uh, as he saved really great uh, chances, which of course, apart from that talks, that River again didn't control the game, even against Godoy Cruz, which a team which is in formation and with no Moro Garcia, uh, apparently had personal problems and couldn't play. Um, and even that, even so, River wasn't so a cohesive team in which you could say, yes, they are so. Uh, I mean, you, you didn't know whether what could happen in the match, which is the river, something that River has been suffering and continued uh, with uh, Santiago Sosa finally as a centre back uh, instead of Zuccolini, instead of Aguirre, instead of uh, uh, well, uh, there were so Paris many was yes, so Paris was the other, um, but yes, uh, again was the victory and perhaps a little improvement but not a lot. Uh... Yeah, I, I still think that when Santos Borre comes back from his uh, COVID um, quarantine, it, it, he's going to make a difference to that because he, he presses that much more effectively than Lucas Prato up front, but we shall see. Um, interestingly, the standings in that group, River are second in Group 3 behind Banfield, who have nine points after that 4-2 win against Central. Um, but uh, I'm not sure that when all of this started, before anybody had played any games, I would have predicted Banfield having scored twice as many goals as River at this point in the group stage. Um, Banfield have eight goals and three conceded. River have scored four and have let in four. Um, Central have three points and Godoy Cruz have none, having lost all of their matches so far. Um, the other standout results are, I mean, as I said, the other none of the away wins were particularly surprising apart from Tacheres winning the Bombonera in my opinion unless anybody has anything well actually actually that was uh, that was uh, Boca's first defeat ever since uh, Miguel Angel Russo is back in the in the dugout for them so it it is quite shocking to see them finally lose a game yeah i mean plus they you know they regularly go through whole league seasons without losing in the Bombonera um, as well. So it's just a generally uh, a very impressive away scalp to take for, for the visiting team. 
Um, and you, you mentioned the goalkeepers that had to, uh, well, the, the, the reserves goalkeepers. And I, in the other hand, of, or, or uh, differently to what happened to, with Bologna, I think that Rossi, of course, Boca didn't suffer a lot of chances, or well, they, 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 do, they did suffer, but uh, just in the most important, which was in the goal, I think Rossi wasn't that good. Uh, instead of getting out of or, or trying to save the the, 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 the attack with, with his body, he went out with his feet. Uh, and uh, well, this let Sonora put it back uh, or put it uh, uh, under his body and, and, and finally score. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well remembered. I'd, I'd forgotten that he was slightly to blame for that one. Yeah. Um, the big news of the weekend, however, came after one of the matches, and that was after a Estudiantes 1-0 defeat at home to Argentinos, and it was that Javier Mascherano has announced his retirement. Um, if he'd done this a few years ago, then we'd probably have had a, you know, felt obliged to have a whole special episode dedicated to nothing else. Um, right now, and in the particular circumstances of 2020 and everything that comes with it, it feels a little bit a little bit of a damp squib, really, doesn't it? Especially coming like a week after Fernando Gago, um, who, of course, maybe wasn't quite as important a figure in the national team over the last decade and a half, two decades. But, um, you know, it, it's coming so close together and, and in a way, in kind of similar circumstances. Mastriano wasn't carrying a knock or anything, but he's clearly just decided, yeah, this, this isn't the same anymore. Yeah, I think we've got a question on it, I saw, so I won't go into too much detail, but you can see really, um, uh, ever since he joined Estudiantes, I think it was uh, the start of 2020, he was the shadow of the player he once was, even, you know, playing in defence, he, he wasn't up to, um, to the speed of it, he, um, he didn't kind of stand out in any matches, I don't think he did anything uh, terribly wrong for Estudiantes, who aren't exactly you know, pulling up, pulling up trees either at the moment, but definitely kind of the player we remember, you know, driving Argentina on, doing all his heroic stuff. Uh, he's gone uh, and he had been gone for a while uh, before this retirement. But he will be missed, you know, he's part of the, the history of, of the Argentina team, the bittersweet history of the last 10 years or so. And very important past, ex-captain, you know, even when he wasn't captain, figurehead of the team in many ways, uh, the inspiration of the team. And yeah, definitely end of an era to, to see him move on. Indeed, yeah. Go, go into a bit more detail when we read the question out in a minute, Dan. Um, so the standings then uh, at the moment, Group 1, if, I'll just run through them all really quickly. Group 1, Atletico Tucumán, nine points. Arsenal, four points. Union, four points. But an inferior goal difference and Racing. Do you want me to read this out loud, Dan? It says zero. Uh, that, that can't be it right. It could be it? even worse by, by the time this goes on air, so just go for it, yeah. Pretty much the same game as I've been describing the last two weeks. Uh, Racing dominating, not being able to hit a, a cow's backside with a banjo, and the other team going up. And they had two shots and goal and scored two goals. So, yeah. Indeed. Fuck for uh, Yeah, as, as, as Dan's just hinted, uh, I didn't realise this until literally right before we started recording this second half, but uh, the first... Um, match in the next round of action is Atletico Tucumán versus Racing and it kicks off in an hour and three quarters 
uh, from when we're recording this right now. I don't know why they're playing on a Thursday, but anyway, there we go. Uh, group two, the standings are Colón, seven points. Independiente, five points. Defensa Justicia, two. Central Cordoba, one. Group three is Banfield, nine. River, six. Central, three. Godoy Cruz, nil. Nice and neat and tidy, that one. Just three, 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 three. The gaps between teams. Group four, Tacheres, seven. Boca, six. Newells, three. Lanús, one. Group five, San Lorenzo, seven. Argentinos, four. Aldo Civi, four. And Estudiantes, one. And group six is Huracan, seven. Beles, five. So at the moment, at the halfway stage, Huracan are winning the race to be the sixth grande. Uh, Gimnasia, four. And Patronato, nil. Please don't write it and complain if you're a Beles fan and you're angry about what I just said. It was just a light-hearted joke. Um, Tony has just WhatsApped me to assure me that his suegro did not drill through an electricity cable. Um, he, he had to duck out originally for a bit because um, his, his swagger was coming around to do something to holes to create some holes in walls and so at first when he got cut off I thought maybe that's what had happened um, but now we shall move on to listeners questions Arch Bell says any sense as to what the contract hold up is at Argentinos Juniors with Matko Milhevich anybody Don't all rush at once now. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go out to say this. Uh, I really don't know. No, I, I think that that's a no, Arch. Uh, sorry. I'm guessing something to, do with, something to do with money, if I had to go out on a limb. That has reminded me, however, talking about contract holdups. I know this wasn't a contract dispute, but I think last week we, we mentioned... Um, that Gimnasia's president had, had quit as Gimnasia president. And we said, you know, what's going to happen to Diego Maradona as manager now? Um, and sure enough, in the finest hand of pod tradition, uh, that was out of date almost before that episode went online uh, because he's been talked into becoming Gimnasia's president again, I believe. Has that, has that been another U-turn since I last heard this or, or is he still, in fact, president? As far as we know, he's still there. As of the which, time of recording, uh, but yeah, possibly not the time not a, of that moment. Which is not a great argument for, for clubs belonging to the socios, if you know what I mean. Or just for, mean, for having them, uh, a wildly popular manager who they can't afford to fire being linked so closely to the, the bloke at the top. Um, it's perfect. Tommy says, out of all the clubs in Argentina, which one has your favourite shirt? Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to say let's everybody exclude your own club from the equation when answering this one otherwise it gets a bit silly and Dan you're not allowed to say Atletico Tucumán either <laughs> fair enough um, I'm going to go for Argentinas because I respect the anarchist principles behind the choice of colours and because it's a nice shirt basically um, I I have two t-shirts. Uh, one because it was, I think, it was uh, great uh, or well designed. The, the Estudiantes, the, the the first kit of Estudiantes that they are they are using right now, not the not the yellow one, but the 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 first team. And then the Arsenal that they were were against against Racing the last match. It was at least it was funny. I won't say it was. Just the best, but it was funny. Something right. Um, yeah, um, I'm just a guy who just likes uh, 
a good design that uh, might just just stand out. Maybe just uh, jump a bit away from the from the traditional and from the from the conventional. Um, on most days, I would say Vélez. I just like love the design. The the the, the chevron is some is just a, a very surefire way to to please me in a in a football shirt. But I just really really like uh, how just how uh, unconventional and just how um, yeah unorthodox is uh, Central's shirt, uh, which is just. Uh, Two, it has two stripes, but it is, uh, those two stripes are themselves formed by just some very tiny pinstripes, I think, which I found uh, rather innovative from, from Rosario Central, just uh, something I didn't, I didn't expect. I really liked it. I really liked it. It's, it's a sort of similar design to Tacheres' current one with those two massive blue stripes either side of the central white one, which just made me think that the kit designers were missing a trick by not having a yoke across the top of that to form a massive T on the shirt for Tacheres. Um, but anyway, my, my favourite, other than, than a river shirt, would be, um, I, I, I'm quite partial to the one, the change kit that Vélez come out with every few years, which is the, uh, like the tricolor colours in stripes. I rather like that one. Um, but also, as I mentioned a week or two ago, the, the kit that Argentinos wore, um, in their home match against Estudiantes, I think it was, uh, to celebrate the, the anniversary of their Libertadores win, was gorgeous. Um, David Novoshevsky says, do you think that Senesi is ready for a call-up? He's been playing really well for Feyenoord. Fuck yes. He's a defender, right? Yeah, he's a le- left... A defender, left. yes, get him in there. He can't be any worse than, than the shout of Argentina I've got at the moment. Yeah, and he's also he has also been one of the better performers in the in the Eredivisie, uh, which is uh, something you could also say about another left-footed central defender like um, Lisandro Martinez. But uh, I think Senesi has also been pretty pretty good. At, he's also, I think, if uh, if I'm not wrong, he's also bigger. I think than than Lisandro, so he might be better in the air. Uh, so that's another perk for for him to to have. But uh, yeah, I think uh, there has to be uh, some sort of uh, shake-up in the centre of defence in Argentina. Did you say bigger than Bernie Sanders, Santi? No, than Lisandro Martinez. Ah, right, because that makes much more sense. It wasn't what I heard for some reason. <laughs> just, just wanted to clarify. Uh, James, James Bolam says, not a question, but a story while explaining the meaning of the word unbearable to one of my English students here in Seville, he asked whether it could apply to people. I told him it could and asked if he had anyone in mind. Yes, I find Eber Banega unbearable. He's a Real Betis fan. Um, (laughs) Thank you for that, James. I have a a story about James, which is that uh, James and I were going to meet up in my local for a pint back in March when he came down here. um, And we were unable to because he got down here just, I think, a day after the government ordered everybody arriving from foreign lands to quarantine for 10 days. Um, and so his planned two-week, I think it was, stay in Argentina turned out to be a few days holed up in a hotel before promptly getting back on the plane to go the other way. So hopefully, James, um, we will be able to meet at some point and, and put that right when all of this is over. Um, Lawrence Hart says, has Diego Milton 
um, I think he might mean Milito, made more of an impression at Racing as a player or as an administrator? He sh uh, should he be placed under stadium arrest in Avellaneda to prevent him from leaving? I think the Milton name is, is fairly apt in this situation. This, this def definitely does feel like a paradise lost to, to Racing fans. Dear you see what I did there, Sam? Yeah, very much so, yeah. I, I, was, you know, I didn't have much time to prepare that. I thought that was, that was all right. Um, no, as a player, I mean, Melito is, you know, the biggest idol Racing have had uh, over the last 20 years. He's huge. And as an administrator, he's had an extremely positive impact on everything that's happened um, in, and, in and around uh, Racing, made the whole um, sporting side of the club much more professional, um, much more seriously run, let's say, um, since, he, since he arrived. And yes, I am I'm wholly in favour of, of any measures which would, um, would see him kidnapped and forced to carry on working for Racing until um, the day he dies. Thank you for that thoughtful response, Dan. Liam yes. Kelly, who is no relation to me, says, happy belated birthday. Here's to many more years. Thank you very much, Liam. What's your favourite memory of Mascherano? Got to be the 2014 World Cup, right? Like that was yes, his moment, uh, you know, splitting his arsehole against um, Ian Robin, uh, telling Sergio Romero to go and save a load of penalties. And, and then Romero, obviously, out of pure fear, went and did exactly that. Um, yeah, just as I said, you know, I hinted at um, a couple of minutes ago, he was kind of the inspiration behind... The Argentina teams that went so, so close to actually winning something um, in three years running. Um, you know, we can all discuss whether keeping him in the centre of midfield for so long was was the right call tactically, um, especially in the 2018 World Cup, where I think he was clearly past his best, um, painfully past his best. Uh, but, you know, as, as kind of heroes go... Uh, for the national team over the yeah over the last ten years, fifteen years, whatever, um, it's it's hard to it's hard to look beyond him. He's he's been a fantastic figure uh, for for Argentine football. I think one of the more interesting um, stories of of his career, once it sort of gets written more coldly and and with the benefit of hindsight, will be just exactly what was going on at MSI. Um, surrounding his his transfers from Corinthians to West Ham and then from West Ham to Liverpool, which obviously was the one that that blew all of that apart after uh, um, Tevez had uh, left for for Man United. Um, that's certainly an aspect that uh, I don't think I, I think is easily forgotten now. I, I'm not going to say not enough attention was paid to it at the time because a hell of a lot of attention was paid to it at the time, albeit a little bit late by a lot of the media who didn't realise what MSI was trying to do. Yeah, especially given the fact that um, it seems like a much more feasible transfer to happen right now than it was uh, 15 years ago. Indeed, because, yeah. I mean, with the Premier League teams um, being much stronger financially than the than the pairs in the in the other leagues, and then considering stories like uh, Fulham spending over a hundred million pounds and getting relegated anyways, so maybe with the the hit, um, maybe 
as years go by, this story might become less and less uh, incredible and hard to believe than it was uh, 14 years ago. But to be honest, back then, for those for those players to arrive at a club like West Ham was yeah, it was bizarre. Just um, yeah, impossible as, to understand. As, as yeah. someone who was obviously living in England at the time and who knew who these guys were already, because I was following Argentine football by that point, it, it was really weird. And the number of you know my mates and stuff whose questions I was having to field about who, who these people were, it was just deeply strange. Um, Liam also says, "I've just seen the format for the lower division transitional tournaments. Uh, why do the AFA make things unnecessarily complicated?" I mean, the answer to that is. Have you been paying any attention for the last 10 years to us, Liam? Uh, it would have been easier to finish the season as normal. I have not seen the format for the lower division transitional tournaments. Have any of you, and do you have any comments on them? Yes, it's a complete fucking mess. Do you want to briefly try and um, describe them to us, Dan? And so are, what are, done... are, these, are, are they promoting and relegating anybody, or are these just like the Copa de la, de la Liga to, to fill no, some they're, time? They're promoting, but not relegating. Okay. To explain it very quickly, you know there were um, uh, two different groups in in the Nacional, in the second division? Yep. Right, now there's four. There's a championship group and a rival de group for, for each zone. Uh, they've all been drawn. Um, and they're all going to play each other once. The top teams go through to one final. The second team goes through to another playoff. Uh, then the loser of that final goes into another playoff. Meanwhile, the teams that are down in the Rivalida, if you finish in the top two there, you're going to go into a different playoff. And I think the third, third to eighth teams in the championship group, they also end, enter some playoffs. Uh, and at the end, all of these playoffs are going to conflate together. And somehow, uh, two, two teams are going to go up into the... Into the top division. Thank you, Dan. I think. <laughs> um, thank you for asking, Liam. Yes, it's incomprehensible, what? basically. Such how long? Mess. How long is it all going to take to um, to to pan out? Then is this going to be a similar time frame to the Copa de la Liga? We're reliably informed that we will have two promoted teams by February. I see. Yes. Very well. Watch this space. Uh, Lee Bartlett has the final question so far of this week, and it is, who are the maddest of mad Argentine goalkeepers, past and present? Uh, the standard answer for the past uh, for that is Hugo Gatti. Um, although I think Carlos Roa also probably deserves a mention. Uh, Germán Burgos, of course. Oh, still, yes. Still yes. Uh, I, I once in a while always... Go back to the to Rio, whether he has to face, I think, a corner or a free kick. Yeah, it was a free kick from Gimnasia back when he was a river goalkeeper, and he uh, he sent the ball to sent the ball to, to to a corner kick with his elbow as if he were playing volleyball. It was it was amazing to watch. Like he was so nonchalantly uh, just uh, hitting the ball with his elbow as if nothing had happened. Yes, that is a wonderful moment. I think for pure just. Deranged violence, possibly uh, Gaston Cesar as well. Elgato. I was about to mention yeah, Cesar as uh, one of the, the Hand of Pod era um, front runners in, for this, yeah. Uh, maybe Agustin uh, Orion as well, maybe not 
not crazy in the in the yeah. good sense, I, I, I guess. I, but uh, I'm not sure that Orion really strikes me as that mad. He just strikes me as just really quite unpleasant. Work, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, maybe. Not, Juan Carrizo for his dribbling. Not Argentinian, oh, yes. but having played here a lot, uh, Chilabarta, I think, with the punching Edmundo, it's also, uh, even with not, not being Argentinian, but I think he ranks really high. Yeah, and of course he, he did play, the, well, in I, that I want case, to say, the vast majority of his career uh, here for that. Yeah, in, in that case, it could measure Sebastián Sosa as well. You could, yeah, very, very true. Um, we have had one more question while we were answering that, and it's from Rupert Fryer, who says, has Scaloni made any real progress? It seems to me pretty much every problem he inherited still remains. Um, you could probably argue that most are beyond his control, to be fair to him. I think he has made a, a lot yeah, of progress. Yeah, I think he has. Yeah. I, I think he's Especially made some progress in terms of... Go on, Santi. Yeah, I think in terms of mostly selection and um, the fact that Let's not forget that um, back when uh, Scaloni was first named Argentina boss, um, players like Gonzalo Higuaín, Ángel Di María, Eber Banega, Lucas Biglia, Javier Mascherano were still part of the Argentina, uh, Argentina team. And, um, Enzo Pérez. Exactly. I mean, Enzo Pérez wasn't even on the, on the 35-man list for the, for the World Cup in Russia. And he was selected anyway and played in, in each and every single one of the games. But uh, yeah, to be to be completely honest, I think his main uh, his main feat and his main um, advance uh, for for Argentina is building a squad that uh, has uh, finally uh, changed uh, from the the maybe one of the best generations of Argentina footballers in a in a long time, but a generation that had run its course. To uh, a group of players who seem um, not not necessarily in the same level as the players of that generation in the prime, but uh, a generation that seems very very hungry, uh, very committed to the national team, and especially a generation that doesn't depend exclusively on Lionel Messi's magic to to progress the ball, to create uh, attacking situations, or to actually take games by the scruff of the neck, which is I think. Uh, a big, big plus from Scaloni. Um, in in addition, of course, of uh, what we had mentioned before, of uh, trusting players that uh, no one had trusted before, like uh, Paul and Paredes and uh, Nico Gonzalez more recently. Yeah, yeah, and I'd say also in Scaloni's favour. Like, obviously, I'm not there in the dressing room, so it's only you know an impression. But I get the feeling there aren't huge over overbearing egos anymore in the Argentine dressing room. Whereas in past years, we could say that there were and, you know, certain coaches definitely had a lot of trouble um, getting their point across um, in the face of that. So, you know, if that is indeed true, which it seems to be, that would be a very big achievement, you know, breaking this um, idea that the players could almost um, just, you know, pick the team themselves and go out and play them and go out and play themselves. Yeah, I remember there was a lot of uh, speculation of even Macherano taking taking uh, charge of the Argentina national team as manager after Russia, mm. and still and still after his retirement there was like a very small buzz as well from some people, but yeah, it was uh, it was crazy back then. I think that beyond football, which is of course the most important aspect, um, the ber- the biggest difference between Scaloni and Sampaoli is that I think that players believe Sampa- believe Scaloni, 
they, it looks like they are in the same side, and uh, and it's I think that's key because if the players don't, don't believe you, uh, well you are done. And it looks like they are a group, a, a single group with a, and all of them are at the same side, and 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 they are with some with with Scaloni. Uh, so I think that's the biggest difference between him and and Sampaoli. Yeah, I think the problem with Sampaoli is that just in the most basic terms, the whole squad seemed to despise him and they they didn't really make any effort to hide it. Like there was a contempt, just for not so much for the, the coaches for the as for the person, which I've seen very, very few times in professional football. I don't know if you guys got the same impression, but yeah, it, was, it just it seemed was, to not stand him at all. It was strange, wasn't it? Because I mean at the time we sort of thought, well, Maybe some of them are a bit sceptical because this guy's not done anything in Argentine football, even though he's done plenty in football but no, it outside. Just seems but then, to be personal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and now, you know, Scaloni hadn't done anything in Argentine football. Scaloni hadn't or done anything football. as a manager in any football. In Scaloni's defense, he did play for Argentina. He was part of the of the Pokemon youth system. Oh, yeah, he sure. But as a manager. He, but as a manager, he's done World Cup. Yeah. Yeah, that's why there were uh, some people, some sections of the press that um, were very, very skeptical towards Scaloni because they think that by uh, breaking all away from uh, San Paoli's uh, backroom staff and taking charge of Argentina by himself, he has betrayed San Paoli in a way. Really? But all the press hated San Paoli as well, so I don't know. I think they were yeah. right to be skeptical because you're given, you know, it's like. I can just give him some random guy like the one of the biggest coaching jobs in the world. I think the the skepticism was was very um, very well founded. Um, I'd love you know, I'd love to see it uh, contradicted and, and proved wrong. But it doesn't mean that they were they were wrong to to be doubting at the at the start at least. Yeah, something that has always struck me in a way and uh, has surprised me is the fact that. I've seen that um, there ha- there's been a lot of criticism towards uh, Scaloni, and I think it is fair for people to criticize Scaloni. But I don't think the the, the reasons behind the criticism are are directly directed. I think in a in a, um, in a constructive way, you know, because I mean, we, there are still people banging on about his inexperience two years on from being named uh, Argentina manager, which I think. Uh, if he has already been on the job for more than two years, I think his inexperienced um, jabs are just uh, a little old, to be fair. And um, and there's also the fact that he may have been uh, treacherous towards uh, Sampaoli, which to which I respond. I mean, I mean, he wants to do his own thing. I mean, he wants to just create um, create his own career. I don't find it exactly wrong to criticize him. I think it's it's much more fair to criticize him on the way he's uh, on the on how fickle he is uh, regarding his selections and uh, maybe not giving some players who have who have had a great great performances at club level a chance in the national team and uh, how his team sometimes just uh, don't know exactly what uh, they're supposed to do on the football pitch. Not exactly his inexperience or his loyalty towards Sampaoli. I don't think it's um, the, the reasons behind the criticism towards uh, Scaloni are well-placed, I guess. But, I mean, those problems you just, uh, you just described, I mean, a lot of that is down to 
inexperienced because he's literally learning on the job and, you know, uh, pressing buttons and, and, and seeing what works. Uh, you know, experienced coaches don't, don't tend to do that. They tend to have a more fixed idea of, of what they see on the pitch. So I think it's still fair to, to point to his inexperience. I mean, uh, he's played, he's had two years on the job, but that's his only two years in as a coach. So he's going to get the year experience thing. Um, it's going to come back and uh, every time that something goes wrong for Argentina. Um, I think what we need to do is just, you know, uh, retain some perspective. Like he's not going to become Pep Guardiola just because he won a game against Peru away. Uh, but, you know, neither should we write him off because when Argentina lose their first qualifier, I mean, if we can just take things a little bit easy and avoid, you know, overarching judgments for, for a couple of months, that would probably be a, a step in the right direction. Indeed. Um, mildly positive, I, I would classify it. So we've had one final question, which is going to get a very quick answer because Andres has to, uh, in fact, had to leave about 10 minutes ago. I'm very aware of that. Uh, published author, whose novel you should all check out, it's called Escapes and it's available uh, in the United States and in the UK. And I've read it and it's, it's very good. Uh, Daniel Tunnard says, hi, podsters, who would win a fight between Javier Mascherano and a medium-sized elephant without any tusks? The elephant, probably. Today, I think probably the elephant. Maybe in his prime, six to ten years ago, uh, he he, he could have given it some. On that note, we're now going to say farewell. Thank you very much indeed for listening um, for another week. Uh, In a few minutes, myself, Dan and Santi will be recording a Hand of Pod Extra for our lovely Patreon supporters. If you want to become one of them, uh, you can get that hour and a bit long video special with myself and the two Dans and loads more other extra content besides at patreon.com slash hand of pod. This uh, for now, however, is goodbye from Andres. Thank you. Goodbye. English Dan. Goodbye. Santi. Who's struggling to unmute his mic. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I forgot it was, it was music. Bye guys. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately not from Tony because he's not managed to get back online, but um, goodbye from me. Thank you and goodbye.